This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, it's Cindy Adams, the same Cindy Adams you get stuck with almost every day in the New York Post for 41 years, and now you're stuck with me at WABC. First, I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving, and now I'm going to bore you with some interesting stuff that I think is semi-interesting. Because I write the column, people send me all kinds of stuff, and I got sent all of these dumb lines. To get rid of them, I'm reporting them for you. Chris Rock, quote, There is no rehab for stupidity. George Carlin, You got the monkey off your back, but that doesn't mean the circus left town. And if you can figure out what the hell that means, lots of luck. I don't know what that means. But these are the lines these guys sent me. Jim Carrey. Big difference between a dog that's going to eat you in your mind and an actual dog that's going to eat you. Can you if you can tell me what these lines mean, lots of luck. I'll give you a raw turkey. Amy Poehler. Quote, grow older, you're less flexible. I hurt my knee on the treadmill, and it wasn't even on. Well, that one's at least I can understand. Chelsea Handler, laugh loudly, and most importantly, laugh at yourself. Okay, I understand that too. Kevin Hart said, quote, People hate you for being different, but they wish they had the courage to do the same. Lily Tomlin If you win the rat race, you are still a rat. (laughs) Jerry Seinfeld, quote, Today, a bookstore is the only physical evidence that people are still capable of thinking. Whoopi Goldberg, quote, Normal is only a cycle on a washing machine. Now I want to tell you a story that's a little upsetting. Thanksgiving time, I want to tell you about Peter Max, the pop artist. He's 84. He's a father. He's a Holocaust survivor. He's an Alzheimer's victim at the moment. He was born in Nazi Germany, a Holocaust survivor, a refugee, an American immigrant, Now he's under New York City court-appointed guardianship. I have reported this in the column. His daughter, Libra, asks to help what she calls an over-medicated Peter, who is suffering what she says is an involuntary day-long isolation. She says that family members even require formal written request just for a time-limited, surveilled visitation. His phone has been removed. Pets, whom he loves, removed. Health care proxy family members are allegedly no longer privy to his medical information. Camera surveillance 24 hours a day. No permission to visit his own art studio. She has put out an urgent call to save the life of Peter Max. It's being sent to officials with jurisdiction. This letter, which I have just told you about, has been co-signed by seven 
hundred people. Many are known names. She wants to relieve her father from being under a New York City court-appointed guardianship this Thanksgiving. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. I'm going to talk about life upon the wicked stage. Now, we know New York City, without being able to give my regards to Broadway, could make us into Poughkeepsie. It is coming back, not Poughkeepsie, Broadway. And now comes Andrew Norlin and Matthew Murphy's book. It's called When the Lights Are Bright Again. And it tells when the lights on the Great White Way went dark and what happened to all the guys and gals who couldn't make a buck and were off work. Okay, life upon the wicked stage. We know New York City, without being able to give my regards to Broadway, could make us into Poughkeepsie. So it's coming back, or it's back, or it thinks it's back. And now comes Andrew Norlin and Matthew Murphy's book, When the Lights Are Bright Again. It's on the book stands. It tells when the lights on the Great White Way went dark. Okay, Andrew, you write that when lights turned dark, you packed your life into a box, locked the door, turned your back on a dream you feared might never be realized. That sounds all great. What does that mean? Tell me about that. Uh, Yeah, I was living at home with my parents for the first time in a decade, 24-7, under the same roof, which in and of itself was an adventure, to say the least. And uh, I had this idea for this book, and uh, locking the door in that pause dream was after I had the idea for the book, I came back to New York, and with no end in sight, really, of Broadway or the theater community coming back, uh, we put all my stuff into a storage unit, and uh, I didn't know when I was going to be coming back to the city that I've been working to live in for, for that decade. I got it. Matthew, what was your experience? You know, I work as a Broadway photographer, so for me, all of a sudden, I had no work for, you know, the foreseeable future. And I was really anxious to have a project to collaborate with somebody on and to be part of the community. And so when Andrew reached out with this idea, I jumped at the chance because it would reconnect me with the community that I love so much. What did you do when you were doing nothing? I took a second to pause. You know, I'd been working so hard for a decade. I came here as a professional ballet dancer and then became a photographer. And I'd really been hustling. And so I took it as a sign from the universe to kind of take a second to pause, to breathe. I moved to Beacon, New York. I took a minute away and then kind of resumed once once the time felt right. Okay. What was your experience? Tell me what was your experience when you were in the Broadway scene? What were you doing? Uh, the most recent thing I did was I was on the national tour of, of Kinky Boots, and that really it changed my life. Being being in a show that was uh, touring the country and making people think um, and and changing people's minds from start to finish was something that I think I think before I was in that show, I really took um, our business, our industry and and the, the, the opportunity when you are given the opportunity and cast in a show to work for granted. And I think once I was in that show and seeing the ways in which the show was giving back to people and watching it change their minds, it made me think about performing in a very different way. I never really thought of Kinky Boots as a great historical background, but I can understand what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the show. 
What was your experience? Tell me, Matthew. Yeah, so I work in advertising for Broadway shows, so kind of anything from the billboards that you see in Times Square to uh, production photos you get in a souvenir book or on a T-shirt or, or something like that. Uh, I'm responsible for taking those photos. So I travel all across the world and do you know, production imagery for shows. And so for me, my livelihood had just kind of disappeared. I had spent all of this time working toward it. And, uh, and I, yeah, I just, I was, I'm always excited to collaborate on something, always excited to have some new project. How did you make a buck in the meantime? I dove into my savings for a second and yeah, uh, was under, very. I know the I know the feeling exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was very grateful uh, to my husband, and he was he was amazing and helped out when when I needed him to. And uh, yeah, I, I took a breath and and I worked in in other photographic ways whenever I could for sure. Okay, okay, okay. Now, Andrew, what's the reason for this book? Why? Uh, my why was just it came out of me falling apart. And I had a conversation with one of my best friends who I grew up with doing children's theater. And she said, Andrew, you, I'm a writer also. And she said, you write about everything else. Why are you not writing about this? And I, I said, I, I thought about that for a very long time and I didn't want to answer her because I knew the, I knew what I was avoiding. And it was just feeling this sort of communal loss. Everybody across the country and the world had been through, through COVID and everybody losing what people and their job. And so when I sat with that, she said she sort of gave me this permission to to grieve, to grieve the loss of my community and my job and my work. And she said, what if you wrote a letter to yourself? What if you wrote like when we write an email, we're never going to send. But just putting the words into the world makes us feel better and writing it down and getting it out of our brain. And I was like, that is an incredible idea. I should do that. And I was like, no, 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 we all should do that. And that's how it sort of was born. Okay, between the two of you, nobody's going to know whose voice is who when <laughs> on the radio. But what I need to know is give me some experiences from the theater people you've got, you guys have t- talked to. Pick something. I don't care what. You know, I think one of the one of a really a really interesting story that we found in the book is someone named Jake Ryan Flynn who is in Mrs. Doubtfire, and he was 12 years old when the shutdown happened. He was actually the first letter that Andrew received when he uh, asked for submissions. And as a 12 year old playing a 12 year old on Broadway, he had no clue what his life was going to be like when or if his job returned. And so he really kind of pondered what this experience was of dealing with loss at a young age, dealing with the potential. 12 years old, what's his problem? I mean, what what does he want to know? Where is he going to get the next chocolate? What, what, what's... <laughs> he had what put his, he, had, he had put his heart and soul into oh, this please, job. Oh, 12, for God's <laughs> sake. Yeah, 12 year old, A 12-year-old's experience yeah. is valid. Yeah, okay. Um... And he, you know, he was just curious whether it would happen, whether it would his dream would come true, and that pain was real for him. So he was really kind of left left alone in New Jersey and and trying to to figure out as we all were what was going to be next. He grew six inches during COVID, and he thought he he writes about that in his letter about he's like I'm afraid the producers are going to say you don't get to come back to this role that you originated in this show that hasn't even opened on Broadway. They were just in previews. So it's just, I, I loved receiving that letter. As, as Matt said, that was the first real letter that was submitted. And it reminded me why I love to perform. It reminded me of the, of what it's like to come at what you love from a naive point of view, kind of like what you just alluded to. I, it reminded me to stop thinking about the noise and the business part of it. And to think about it from this child's perspective of, I just like to be on stage and bring people joy and to make them smile. And that's why we go to the theater. That's why we want live performances at a chance to escape the BS of the real world. And that's what he was writing about. I loved it. I understand that. On page 159, I remember reading that a, a person called Stephanie Bissett, 
if that if I'm pronouncing That's it. Stephanie Bizonet, yeah. She says she missed, quote, the rush of nerves in the wings before she went out. Now, that I understood. I've been in show business all my life. And people who are sitting out front don't understand that there is a nervousness when yeah. you're standing in the wings. You're terrified. Your palms are wet. But nobody sitting out front knows that. Yeah. So did you ever feel the rush of nerves in, a, in the wings? Oh, yeah. I, I, st- I still get nervous when I go on stage. And I love that you brought up Stephanie's letter because what I love about her story is that she talks about um, overcoming cancer and returning to returning to Broadway after she contracted cancer and fought it and beat it and came back to Broadway stronger. And that's that's what I love about the book is it's humanizing the people in the community that people just see as these performers that work hard on a stage. It's, it's showing the humanity that like we're struggling behind the scenes, just like you are in your day to day life, that it's bigger than show business. That's what the book is about. Audiences never thought of things like in the book, uh, uh, Barbara from Baltimore. I don't know who these people are, says that waking up at 9 a.m. feeling the panic of tech week before every show opens. I know what tech week is you have to explain to listeners what she means by tech week and how she misses it yeah so i think in the same way that you're talking about the kind of anticipatory rush of about of the time when you're about to go on stage tech week for a performer is when all of the kind of uh different aspects of the show are finally coming together. You're in the theater for the first time. You're feeling the lights for the first time. You're hearing the orchestra. You're getting to try on your costumes. You're doing all of these big firsts. And so it's all of these momentous occasions in a show that are kind of condensed into one, like, seven to ten day period. And all of a sudden, that was just completely gone. This kind of energy that you've craved and and feed it on your whole life was just nowhere to be found. What did she do? What did this person do during this two years? I'd have to look. I don't remember. Truly, there's so many submissions. I I don't remember everybody's. uh, Okay, okay, okay. By heart. (laughs) Okay. Another one that I remember because I read the book, Lauren from Texas. I don't know who these names are because they're first names only and from cities only or, or states. She said that missing memories like the roaring sound of applause, that was like the vibrations shaking the floor. I know what that's like. Yeah. I also know what it's like to bomb and not have it. <laughs> yeah. We and all the know. Quiet, <laughs> the real lousy quiet. Yeah, like I know about that. But what do you do? How do you replace that in your life when you don't have it anymore? How? Right. That's that's what I was so inspired by receive, being on the receiving end, if you will, of these letters and, and having to deal with sort of the, the – the huge array of emotion that's coming from people, whether they be celebrating joy in their life, whether they be sharing heartache with not being able to become pregnant. The stories were so vast. But what I love is people's willingness to share how much they miss the stage, but also share about what they're struggling with during COVID. Because I think that is like to me, that's the nugget. And that's the special. That's the reason I made the book is that it's told from the lens of the Broadway and theater community across the country with a few people from across the world. Um, But it's not about the book is not about show business. You will find any listener that's listening today will find themselves in these letters from people sharing what 
they miss about their job and and what it's like to just be isolated and people share their their stories about pivoting and finding new things and people starting new businesses and entrepreneurship it's just very or having kids or spending more time with their kids it's it's everything name the book again so people know what it's like give me the name of the book the book is when the lights are bright again and give me your names i'm matthew murphy the photographer and And i'm andrew norland the creator okay between the two of you eloise from oklahoma she says, in a world without theater, what do you love? It's murder. What is New York without Broadway? Yeah. And what is Broadway right now? It's still it's still a fractured creation. Yeah. It is, but I think what's what's impressive about the community right now is that everyone's really bonding together and really doing everything they can to be safe and to get everything back up and running. I think we heard a fact the other day that was, I think it's like 39 of the 42 Broadway theaters are full right now, which is an incredibly impressive considering how quickly we've come back. You know, What do you mean full? Full uh, backstage or full out front? Meaning that there's a, a show in the theater. But, okay, my job is to cover a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I, not being 12 years old anymore, being a bit more senior, are not feeling so secure about sitting in a theater with a mask on for three hours with somebody coughing next to me or somebody spitting uh, behind me. So I also have reservations. I'm not the only one. Yeah. I think uh, as someone that has now the Broadway has reopened as of uh, late August this year and has I, I myself has been, have been to many shows um, – I feel content walking in and knowing that uh, that everyone around me is fully vaccinated, that everybody has their mask on. The, the, the theaters and the, the staff, I have to give a huge shout out to the people behind the scenes that don't get any of the glory at all of these theaters are working so hard to make sure the audience is safe and is, is having an experience that is as close to what it looked like before. Um, but in this new in this new normal and season that we're in until until we can get out of it. How did you garner all of this stuff? All of the material for the book? Yeah. So we originally uh, posted, it was a lot of social media word of mouth for us. You know, we both are very active on social media. So I think we started to reach out to people that we knew that we thought might be interested uh, and they would spread the word. It kind of just was one of those things that the minute we got one person involved, they would tell five of their friends that this this was a very therapeutic experience for them and how much it really meant to them to sit down and reflect upon what this period of of loss, but also this period of gain and other aspects of their life had been like. And so it really was something that we kind of like lit the match and it just kind of caught fire. So what did you ask? What was your ask? The original ask was for a letter submission that was a letter written to yourself reflecting on what the shutdown had meant to you as a, as a Not everybody returned. Not everyone you've spoken to has been back as number one actor and actress yeah, that's very true. I think what's actually one of my favorite things is that the book is still helping the people that wrote these letters and people are not in the same place today that they were when they wrote the letter. And also, sure, like you're saying, Broadway is back, but there are so many people in this book that are still very much unemployed and still very much not back in theater or they're still auditioning. They're still doing their survival job, as we call it in the biz. Like the book, I think, is a perfect reflection forever of a time capsule of this time that we've all been through as a community and as a country and as a world, but also it's a reminder and that's why I created these chapters in it and that's why I wanted it to be sort of digestible and not so overwhelming. What are they doing? Tell me what some people are doing when they're not starring on Broadway. 
Uh, people are are working and busting tables. People are selling I work real at, estate, I work at yeah. Equinox selling real estate. Um, people are personal trainers. And if there is one thing I've learned about people in show business, it is that we are tenacious as hell, and we we will create space for ourselves. That's what this book has become for all these people that wanted to share their vulnerability. We will create the space when there is no space. So if they're not making any money, how are they going to buy this book? Who? <laughs> the people who are in it. Oh, oh, the people who are in it. We've sent some books to people that are in it, and and everybody has supported us in, in incredible ways. How? By buying the book, by reposting things on social media, um, by sharing their letters in, on their social media to – to normalize us being expressive about our feelings and what we're going through on well, a day-to-day basis. So many people really got behind the book as well because uh, a big portion of the proceeds benefit the Actors Fund, which yes. in times like this, the Actors Fund is so essential for helping people get back on their feet, helping people kind of however they can. And so uh, people have really jumped at the at the chance to be involved in something like that. There's no yeah. way to sell the book inside the theater, is there? At the time, we are only in bookstores and online, but you know, hopefully, at some point, we could be in a theater. It gets down to the logistics of each individual show and each individual theater owner, and all of those different aspects have to be checked with. But it's sure. definitely on our radar. <laughs> okay, so it's not my brilliant idea all by myself. Right? <laughs> no, I figured that out. I'm I'm quick that way. Okay, someone whose first name is Lana from Vermont said in your book, "It's not always about." Who you know, it can be to get an, a part on Broadway. It can be how tall you are. It can be the color of your hair. It can be what maybe the director has in mind. This is something that people who are not involved in theater don't know. They don't know all the various things that come together to get even yeah. a cockamamie three-line yeah. part. They don't know, understand that. Yeah, Isn't that part of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it... Any aspect of the theater really does come down to it being kind of catching lightning in a bottle, right? It's the, that perfect moment of being in the room with the right people and all of it kind of gelling at once. But it's definitely any aspect of it is a pounding the pavement day in, day out, working your butt off for that one big What's break. so great about being in theater? Why? Why don't you just do something else? Why don't you sell armpits or somewhat whatever the hell it is why 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 what is this grand wonderful thought about being unemployed in theater tell me so people will understand i'm in it all my life yeah but if i didn't make a buck i'd, I'd find something else yeah i i'll answer that uh yeah well, i fine. have i, I have asked spent- him and you're answering <laughs> fine uh I have I have spent way more time since I graduated college and spent an arm and a leg and I'll be feels like I'll be paying that off till the day I die. Um, I've spent way more time unemployed than I have employed, but I have to tell you that the gray areas and the time between my jobs makes me a stronger person and it makes me feel like my job is vacation. What are you talking about? It makes you a stronger person. Being unemployed makes you a stronger person. Yeah. How? Because it makes me tenacious, it makes me have to work harder for trying to find where the next job is, and it may, and you have to embrace the hustle. Theater people are some of the strongest people in the world, and the reason for that is because 
when people tell us no, we keep trying to find the next yes. We keep trying to find the door until someone gives us that opportunity. Because like you just said, there's so many things stacked up against you. When you walk into that room and they're behind the table, there's 15 people ready to judge you because that's their job. But you're just trying to show show your talent and show what you love Listen to do. to you, you're making unemployment a victory. I don't really... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, everyone is striving towards making a living out of this, out of this career, for sure. But... You talk to even legends, and they they share their their times about struggling. For example, our uh, Harvey Firestein in, in, endorsed the book and is a huge fan of the book. And he was uh, he has been helped like three or four times, I believe, um, by the Actors Fund in his story. Like moments where he was like so like this very 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 well off man in the business that is a household name. Even he struggled. And like that's what I love about people sharing their stories. And that's what I love about the theater. And I, I perform on stage because I can't imagine myself doing anything else. And I would rather bring people joy eight times a week and have to pay off student loans, like I said, till the day I die, than end my life with a bunch of money in my bank account and not have spent my time on this earth making other people feel happy. Oh, God, you're going to make me cry in about 10 minutes. Okay, so now you. Yes. <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, I, read the, I read your book, and a guy called Ali Stroker, is that a guy or a girl? That's a Tony winner, Ali Stroker. She won the Tony for Oklahoma uh, in 2019, okay, I believe. don't put me down the fact no. that <laughs> you're rotten. I'm going to throw you off the floor in, in 20 minutes. He, she, it, Stroker, whatever, from Ridgewood says... You must learn to shine even when you're afraid or in pain. So after you've now told me who it is, is that the case? When you're not feeling well, you still have to do your job. But don't we all? Do you mean physically when you're not feeling well? Well, you're saying basically he, it, she is saying that even if you're not up to it, you have to give your all. But I'm finding that we all have to do. We're doing this radio program and we have a problem with our microphones. Yeah. <laughs> so we all have to do our job, do we not? I mean, Absolutely, you're glorifying yeah. the fact that people are in theater. We all have to do this. I think that to me, the book is, is, is glorifying the fact that I wanted to like get rid of the this veneer of I, w- I wanted to create something where pe- an audience member can now buy this book and see that they are I wanted to get rid of the fame and people are sharing what they love about the theater yeah, because it's through that, the, that I lens. Understand that. Yeah. I understand that. I understood that. That that's a that's very interesting about it. When you're not singing or dancing or not rushing to the theater or not shoving on wigs wigs and makeup, what did they all? Do? What are they doing now? Looking for jobs or forgetting show business? I think it's I think it's all of that. Depended I think, person to person. I yeah. think, you know, some people found that taking a minute away from the business, they were able to see, oh, I do have this other passion that I really love and I want to pursue that for a while and I'm happy pursuing that. You know, I think having this kind of forced hiatus for everybody allowed them to assess things with a freedom to breathe that we all hadn't had in a long time because when you're doing the eight show a week grind and when you're in the midst of trying to audition constantly and in the rat race of like fighting for a part for everyone with everybody i think you can just lose sight a little bit about what your actual goals are and what your actual heart is saying to you and i think this time really allowed people to reassess and so some people have gladly pivoted away and some people have doubled down is there anyone who would not talk to you 
anyone who would not write a letter. Yeah, is there a reason why they would not? We actually did have a couple people who, when we reached out, they would say things like, I fully support the project. I love it. You know, for me, I can't really reflect on the past year right now. I don't have the thoughts at the time to really sit down and assess what I feel. And so I don't feel like my contribution would necessarily be useful. Um, but we never had anybody that we reached out to that wasn't really supportive of the idea. Yeah. Some people bowed out for personal reasons. Right. Well, and what you just said, I think I'm excited for those people that felt like they weren't in a headspace where they could sit down and write a letter to themselves because they weren't willing to face those feelings in that moment. I'm excited for those people to maybe have the book come across their lap or their coffee table in the coming months eventually in their life and and have this space for them to grieve through other people's stories that they can connect to and relate with. I think it's a great idea. Last plug for the book. How much? Where is it sold? When's it out? Give me the plug for the book. So the book is out now wherever books are sold. You can buy it in Barnes & Noble. You can get it on Amazon. It's $40. It's you know beautifully printed, beautiful photos, incredible letters, and we're really proud of it, and we hope that everyone will take a look. Thank you, guys. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Thanks. A name you know who's in the know. It's The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, it's Cindy. Cindy Adams from the New York Post. You're stuck with me, and happy coming Thanksgiving. I'm going to talk about the holiday. It is coming up Thanksgiving, the eve of our revolution. Our pioneer ancestors were mostly opposed to fighting the Brits. This is the history. I have done all the examining, so I know the history. The new Americans had strong ties to the motherland, at least a lot of them did, and they didn't mind remaining under Britannia's rule. Of course, the palace towels didn't then say Charlie and Camilla. Pay attention. When the pilgrims, then called the separatists, first landed here, it was not at Plymouth Rock. It wasn't at WABC either. They went ashore November 21, 1620, at Provincetown, Massachusetts. History does not say why, but they only stayed a month. Me, I'll tell you why. There was no Marriott. December, they sailed across Cape Cod to Plymouth. And why they did that, I don't know. Contrary to popular belief, I wasn't there at the time. I came about a month later. Now, if George Washington's mother had her way, America today would not be under American rule. It would be under British rule. Mary Ball Washington, who was up her son's britches, didn't want Georgie to join the revolution. She was against her kid becoming president. Incidentally, nobody ever ran against George Washington. Not that he could run very far, very long. He didn't even own long pants. He had short little knickers. There was no White House in those days. Our first commander-in-chief governed the nation from where else? Pay attention, New York, which, as everyone knows, is the hub of the USA anyway. The first presidential mansion was on Cherry Street, so named before George chopped that stupid tree down. By the way, not that this comes up often in conversation, but the father of our country was no father. George and Martha had no kids. 
five other presidents were also childless. While I'm talking, I may as well tell you who they were. James Madison, Andrew Jackson, James Polk, James Buchanan, Warren Harding. Our current president shouldn't have had kids either, but we shouldn't go into that right now. The greatest brood belonged to John Tyler, who knocked off 15 children. My history primer doesn't say why. I guess he was (laughs) either as Catholic as Kennedy or as sexual as fellow Massachusetts Ben Affleck. Now, our strangest tradition is this turkey meal. Pilgrims did not eat that thing. I have done all the history. I know. Not that I would eat turkey if I had a choice. I mean, a sirloin rare, a pastrami on rye, this I could understand. There wasn't a turkey within miles of the first Thanksgiving. Whoever stuck that on us is himself a turkey, and we can go stuff him. The separatists, as they were called, dove into their nearest Christides, which was the woods, and what they found was venison, goose, and duck. Turkeys, by the way, are native U.S. birds. There were never, ever turkeys in Turkey until somebody, probably on a diet, brought them there. Turkeys were named there. Turkeys were named by English settlers who thought they looked like guinea hens. So why they named them turkey, this I don't know. I tell you the truth, I'm just lucky I know this. Benjamin Franklin wanted gobble-gobble to be our patriotic symbol instead of the eagle, which, of course, may account for the first time anyone ever told Benny, go fly a kite. The said national observance is the same who wrote the poem, Mary Had a Little Lamb, and why she didn't establish lamb chops as our patriotic dish I have no idea. Her name was Sarah Hale. Before Abraham Lincoln got elected, Thanksgiving was no official day. Mrs. Hale pestered Abe until he agreed to make the proclamation. And whilst we rhapsodize patriotic and extol Americana, know that our stars and stripes once had more stripes. When the 14th and 15th states entered the Union, two stripes got tacked on to the original 13. However, some brain quickly saw that if we keep adding every time we gained another state, our flag would soon be larger than the Dakotas. So Congress took away those additional stripes and said something to the effect of, Enough already. Now, what are they eating Thanksgiving? Well, Debbie Mazur said, I make pumpkin pies from scratch. My lousiest Thanksgiving was cooking for a boyfriend whom I then adored. I made a whole meal, turkey, ham, sweet potatoes, stuffing, cranberry sauce, homemade. At the crack of dawn, I was stewing and braising, all for him. Ta-da! The rotten guy never showed. She says he forgot and says, Debbie, I never forgot. 
One holiday, Sandra Bernard was at the Booth Theater doing a show. So what did she then eat? She said, who gives a whatever? I was working, making money. What else matters? Sweet Sandra, old soul, the true holiday gizzard. The Stillers, Ben Stiller, says, my mom, are you nuts? She wouldn't cook. She wouldn't make a turkey. She gave us steak. Deborah Norville rises by dawn's early light to roast the dry, tasteless thing. So she says, it's takeout and store-bought dressing. I believe in low maintenance. I can't make it. I've tried. I can't do it. Nathan Lane says, I always know about Thanksgiving. My usual experience is to argue with my family, to fight with them, and then leave. Steve Guttenberg's lousiest says, he says, I was 10. I was drunk at 10 the first time in my life. And I was friendly with an Irish kid named Eugene who managed with a bobby pin to open my father's liquor cabinet and we drank peppermint schnapps. It was the night before Thanksgiving and I woke on the day with a terrible hangover. Having turkey in our neighbor's house, he says, I felt warm, very warm, really warm, like real warm. I was so warm. When my mom brought out the tray of food, I ran outside and hit the bushes. I was in a bad way. Clive Davis, I loved going to my family. My aunt married the retired founder of Hebrew National. It was a great holiday. I was able to eat salami. David Dinkins is no longer with us, but he says, my best holiday was in Trenton. That's where my father lived. We'd have all the trimmings. Every year, Pop would say, Grace, and I'd say, I don't understand you. And he'd say, I wasn't talking to you. So did he himself ever say grace there? Said David Dinkins, no. Listen, it was in his house. Let him say it. Hulk Hogan. I cook. I'm very efficient. I hate when my wife cooks slow. Even when our son was a year old and pooped in his diaper, I changed it fast. I am the bionic Mr. Mom. I cook the damn bird in 20 minutes and I'm finished. Marlo Thomas has gotten up preparing every Thanksgiving at 8.30 a.m. But, she says, I don't do cleanup. Someone else does cleanup. Dan Rather remembers that one year he had lentil soup because he was in India, which brings up the fact that, believe it or not, one Thanksgiving I was in Kabul, Afghanistan, and me, my Thanksgiving, was plain white rice. Ben Affleck said, I prefer white meat for Thanksgiving, though actually I'm more of an ass man, which I guess might be dark meat. Alan Cummings says, I'm all for pagan holidays, so I celebrate enthusiastically. Chaz Palmentary, I substituted tofu one year. It tasted better. 
Gina Gershon. Oh, please. I do a ton of hot dogs with sauerkraut. Eating together is a ritual, but I still hate to cook. Webster once said, Webster, well, he hasn't said it lately, but he said about Thanksgiving, it is an act of expressing thanks to God. It is grateful acknowledgement of benefits for divine favors. And in, in the Bible, Philippians 4, 6 says, quote, Confessing with gladness the benefits and mercies which God bestows either upon ourselves or others, that is thanksgiving. Okay, now that that's over and we're into stuffing the stuffing, let's go further. Scott Stringer, he's very grateful for the fact that he's still in his same job because he didn't get to be mayor. And we have to know about Chris Christie, who is also thankful. We are thankful when someone pulls a fourth sweet potato off his gums. But he's now going to be thankful that he's going to make a run for president. Really? I remember the night that Donald got elected. I was standing right next to him in his office. Standing alongside us was Chris Christie. And now Chris Christie is going to be running for president. There is always the possibility that Donald is going to run for president. Can you imagine the two of them? One of them is going to end up very unhappy. Now, Diane Keaton, she says she goes to her mom for the holiday. Why, she says, it's because I'm useless. I'm a disappointment to everyone. I can't cook. Robert Downey goes to his mother-in-law in Palm Desert. But he says, not empty-handed, I bring an option on the pecan pie. Mary McFadden, the dress designer, she says, one year I toured an African museum and I ate sturgeon altogether. Lisa Kudrow, she's good in the kitchen. She cooks three turkeys for many people. She says, I like smaller birds instead of a big one because they're more moist and more parts. She once asked me, are three 10-pounders enough? Me, she asked. What do I know? Emerald Lagasse, she didn't ask. For me, water is takeout. Al Roker, Al cooks. Glenn Close, Glenn does not. She caters. Susan Sarandon, she says, I play the board game, wise and otherwise. That's the name of the board game. I play that with my daughter, Eva. Well, I don't know what that is, but it's better than eating turkey. Julianne Moore, her little family is at their beach house and get her usual cornbread recipe. Stephen King's special food is peanut butter fried in Wesson oil with Cheerios. Listen, what do you want from me? I am just reporting what I have heard from all of these guys. Billy Bob Thornton, he was raised on a diet of possum and squirrel. So him, I never even asked anything. What is he going to tell me? Molly Ringwald, I can't cook. I only eat 
my mother's a chef. Curtis Slewa, who we love here at WABC, he says, I do capon, which is a castrated rooster. The thing tastes better. Chaz Palmentary, I'm Italian. My wife can't cook for nothing. Once, I totally threw out her turkey, and we did pasta. Me, I am visiting a friend this weekend. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, it'll be leftover turkey, turkey pot pie, turkey hash, turkey sandwiches, turkey soup, turkey giblets. By Monday's turkey burgers, I'll be back doing my column, and if I can still waddle, I'll be here next week. Bernadette Peters' specialty on Thanksgiving is ricotta cheesecake. Diane von Furstenberg, who's a veggie lover, she says, my mainstay is stuffed sweet potato. Liam Neeson, his duty is washing the dishes and peeling the potatoes. He doesn't do the cooking. Aidan Quinn, every half hour I ask, can I help? And then before anyone can answer, I run to the TV football game and stay out of earshot. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne, he said, once my turkey was stuffed with chestnuts. I'm allergic. I broke out in hives. So I saw Bon Jovi the other night. I saw him in a blue silk suit, and he looked so nice and trim. And he said, This Thanksgiving, I plan to eat myself into insanity. The suit I am now wearing that you think looks so good on me is two years old. I'm just glad I can still fit in it. Now, I went back to history. November 25, 1948. That's like 73 years ago, and I'm going to tell you when I come back what you would have eaten and what it cost. Now, a station break. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I want to tell you something about Thanksgiving. Almost a hundred years ago, it's not almost a hundred years ago, but in November 25, 1948, the Thanksgiving Day Feast at Les Glands, it's closed now, but then it was a very high-class, super high-class restaurant in New York City. The swells went. Here's what they served. Now pay attention because at the end, I'm going to give you the price. They gave you... First course, Blue Point oysters or cherry stone clams or shrimp cocktail or crab meat ravigot, hors d'oeuvres, canapes, half grapefruit, herring salad, cassava melon, and then the, sa- the salad was celery, olives, then it was soup, chicken, okra, creole, cream of mushroom. Then it was sweet potatoes, candied, sprouts, or roast prime ribs of beef, baked potato, mixed salad, hearts of lettuce, then for dessert, 
pumpkin pie, mince pie, peach melba, spumoni, ice cream, and coffee. And the price for all of that, $4.25. I thought maybe you'd be interested in hearing all of that. Now I want to tell you about a new book that's come out. It's called Pup, P-U-P, Culture. Celebrities love dogs. They go from Ariana Grande, who's mother 10 at one time, to Hugh Jackman, who's always photographed walking his dogs, to Ben Affleck, who pets many creatures apart from Jennifer. And there's Kylie Jenner, Miley Cyrus, Jennifer Garner. Hey, in the business of making money, you sometimes need something else to love. There's now a new book called Pup Culture. It's written by a four-legged lover named Victoria Schaffer. And she has barks in it by Glenn Close, Vanessa Williams, Tony Bennett, David Letterman, and a crate full of animal lovers. Listen to this. David Letterman has this great story. He says, quote, years ago, waiting to go on in the San Fernando Valley nightclub showbiz, which was near where I lived, was this dog, strange dog, a stray dog. He was eating a cheeseburger off the kitchen floor. Then he was roaming aimlessly. He had no collar on him, no tag. He looked like a small Belgian shepherd-like dog who had just wandered in from the parking lot. Nobody knew what to do with him, so we fed him. Then at the end of the night, when nobody claimed him, Letterman took him home and drove him around. I have a whole story with this. The poor thing had worms. And by the way, we took him to a vet. He and I, the dog and I, had that in common, worms. Letterman named him Bob. The YMCA gave dog training lessons, so they signed up. This Thanksgiving was at my girlfriend's. The day before the holiday, we placed our frozen turkey on the counter to thaw and went food shopping. When they returned, the turkey had disappeared. The next day, there was a banging at the back door. The strange dog, Bob, brought back the original turkey that he had stolen from our table. It was still semi-frozen, covered in mud. He'd somehow knocked that 15-pound bird off the counter, dragged it, let himself out, and buried it in the backyard, smelling our new turkey cooking in the house. He schlepped his back in. I thought, never again said Letterman. I will never witness anything this magical. This dog has been my good friend for years and years and years. He is my Thanksgiving miracle. I will forever love him. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 